Welcome back to New View EDU, a podcast from the National Association of Independent Schools on what's next for school leaders. I'm Tim Fish, Chief Innovation Officer at NAIS. Today, I am excited to welcome Dr. Tyler Thigpen to New View EDU. Tyler is the co-founder of The Forest School, an Acton Academy in South Metro Atlanta. He's also co-founder and executive director of the Institute for Self-Directed Learning, and he's instructor and academic director at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education. Formerly, Tyler was a partner at Transcend, a national nonprofit in school redesign. Tyler holds a doctoral degree in educational leadership from Harvard's Graduate School of Education, a master's in public administration from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, and a master's in theological study from Regent College of the University of British Columbia. He has written about the future of learning in The Washington Post, Education Week, The Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Getting Smart, and many others. He is the father of four children, all who attend the Forest School. Tyler, thank you so much for joining us today on New View EDU. Tim, you're, you're too kind. It is great to be here. Uh, really enjoy our conversations as always and excited for this one. Thank you so much. You know, we've been working together for, for a number of years on various projects. And I'll tell you, every time, Tyler, we get together, no matter where it is, Sometimes we've met in airports and had lunch together. Sometimes we've met at NAIS. Sometimes we've bumped into each other at various places. And every time we get together, you leave me thinking about and rethinking what is possible for young people. So before we start our conversation, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for, for helping me reorient to, to how I think about the future. Well, thank you for those kind words, Tim. And right back at you. Honestly, the, the feeling is the same. Uh, every time I'm with you, I appreciate the learning mindset that you bring to this work. And from the position that you sit and your team at NAIS, being able to see what different folks are doing uh, on behalf of families uh, across the nation is really inspiring. So, so thanks. Thanks for the kind words. So let's get it started. One of the things that, as we all know, that got New View EDO started was this, this simple question. That if we look at the last, I don't know, 125 years since the Committee of Ten sat down and thought about what the purpose of education is to, to where we are today and the world we're in. And things certainly are quite different. And I'm curious from your perspective, you know, if we go broad, what is the purpose of education today? Why should young people be in school? What should school be about fundamentally? Great, great question, Tim. I, I've been wrestling with this question for for a few decades now. It's just on my heart as a human to to give courage to to people and especially to young people. And I've been I've been wondering to what end. And, and I think to live in the United States, where there really are differing views on the purpose of schooling, you know, both historically and today, I think it's really fascinating. The, the way I make sense of it is I I just am a person who personally very focused on relationships. And I think about the fact that as humans, we, we all have relationships with ourselves, we have relationships with others, and we have relationships with the natural world. And so you might say that we have relationships with both the social and the natural world. And so I think the purpose of education 
is to guide young people to explore how they might learn to cultivate both the social and the natural worlds and even restore the social and natural worlds in, in ways that they may need restoration, uh, in ways that they're broken. And uh, so it's a very, very much, I take a relationship-centered approach. You know, how might we create environments that allow young people to express their thoughts, feelings, and plans, just knowing that all of those are coming from a good, beautiful place? And then how might we empower them to use, you know, their talents, their skills in order to develop and restore the social and the natural worlds? You know, Donna Orm talks about this a lot on the few episodes she's joined us for, where if you look at what was at the center for a long time, is very much sort of the acquisition of content and skills in an academic environment, right? And those things are really important, the things we should absolutely be doing today. But also this notion of relationships and how relationships give way to well-being and how a foundational component of the purpose of school has got to be the well-being of the individuals in our community. And what does that look like? And how do we create the structures where that takes place? And it it really leads me to your work with the Forest School. You know, the Forest School is part of the Acton community of schools. I think it's now probably over, what, 200 schools in the U.S. and around the world. And, you know, Acton schools have a unique vision and a unique view on what school can look like and how school can operate. Could you just take a couple minutes and give us a little bit of background and a little bit of explanation about both Acton schools and the Forest School as a unique example of an Acton school and sort of what's school like every day for a student who attends and how might it be different from what people typically think about when they think about school? Oh, Tim, well, I could talk about this a long time, so I'll try and keep it brief, but and I have you to thank for, I think, introducing me to that Acton Network early on, uh, or, or at least in my early steps. But I remember when I was doing some exploration and research around, you know, school movements, and I came across the founders, Jeff and Laura Sandifer of the Acton Academy Network, and I heard them say, we believe, we start from the belief that every child is a genius and can change the world. I, I immediately thought, well, I think that too. I'd love to see the kind of learning environment that you've designed, you know, that is in alignment with that idea. And that's how I got turned on to, to Acton. And so, you know, the, the mission of the Forest School and other Acton Academies is, is simple. It's that each person who enters our doors will find a calling that will change the world. And so it's very much centered on what you just mentioned, Tim, so helping young people flourish, helping young people find their purpose. I mean, yes, there are academics, you know, yes, there are skills and knowledge in the traditional English, science, math you know, history domains, but it's not just that. Uh, the, the, our school, the Forest School, is designed to cultivate a much broader, more holistic set of learner outcomes. You mentioned that Gang of Ten, you know, makes me think of, in 1996, there was a meeting in UNESCO, you know, right around, you know, the, the, when the internet was just becoming huge, a group of folks that were convened to explore what is the future of education. And, and they sort of said, you know, there's this transdisciplinary approach that's really appropriate moving forward. And it's, we, schools should exist to, to help young people learn to be, learn to do, learn to learn and learn to live together. And the forest school very much is a place that's intentionally designed to give learners practice from the youngest ages at learning to be great people, at learning to do key marketplace skills, at, at learning to learn for themselves and really learn to shoulder the responsibility for their own learning, you know, based on learning science and then, and then learn how to live together in an intentionally diverse environment. Uh, f- for me, it is 
so fun being at the fourth school. It's kind of a convergence of a lot of things at once. I mean, there's, you know, it's a very inspiring environment, you know, where learners are challenged and, and inspired and stories are told and questions are posed that don't have clear yes or no answers and learners have to debate. It's a very empowering environment where learners have a lot of choice. They have a lot of say. They can go at their own pace. They can work on what they want to work on. They can sit where they want to sit. They can eat where they want to eat. They can work with whom they want to work. There's a strong emphasis on character formation at the school. We believe that there's a connection between developing strong character and, you know, being able to shoulder the responsibility for your own learning. And so, you know, the learners are, are given opportunities to make rules and to learn how to follow those and to hold one another accountable and responsible for those rules. And in doing so, you know, practice good, strong character. You know, at Forest, there's a real emphasis on inclusivity and belonging. We're, we're really trying to maximize diversity across six dimensions, Tim. Economic diversity, racial diversity, religious diversity, age, gender, and even school background. I mean, at Forest, we've got about a quarter of our learners come from homeschool environments, a quarter come from charter school, a quarter come from traditional district, and a quarter from independent schools. And it's a really interesting mix. And everybody kind of brings their own strengths and experiences and stories. You know, there's also an emphasis on relationship building. We're really tracking, Tim, you know, learners, the extent and the depth and the quality of the relationships that our learners have with people who are like them, with people who are different than them, and with people who are in power who can, you know, maybe get them a job or make a reference or or do an apprenticeship. And there's rigorous learning. You know, the, the projects are, are real world. Learners have to use their math. They have to use their science to help people in the community. And that's hard and messy. Uh, <laughs> and there's some struggle, but, but we love it. And then, you know, lastly, I'll say there's a lot of flexibility. We've got an online environment as well called the Forest School Online. And uh, it's been really interesting to see parent and learner demand to be able to kind of take their learning anywhere across the world. And so, you know, again, it, for me, it's, it's really fun. I love the way you describe it. And it's what I've seen when I visited and I've had the opportunity to sit at a table with students. And, you know, and one of the things way back when years ago, I had the opportunity to to visit with Jeff Sandifer and many of the other founders of Acton Schools at the original campus in Austin, Texas. And I was sitting in the room and Jeff was talking about this notion of stepping back. He talked about how one of the incredibly important elements of Acton is that the guide, not they're not called teachers, called guides. Guides have create the context by which they step back. And then when things start to kind of get messy, as you mentioned, the magic is in the is in the necessity to step back again. That once we feel like we got to jump in and fix it as educators, we actually need to step back again and let the students and let them figure it out together. And I've often said that, you know, I'm a big believer in almost every episode of New View EDU, the concept of agency has somehow popped in to our conversation. And one of the things that I've seen in Acton, and I've seen at Forest certainly, is through the Live Daily experience, agency is really unlocked in the students. And I'm wondering, if you could just tell us a little bit about how the design daily experience creates the context where folks step back and where they really do create some of that agency in ways that maybe folks in more traditional schools, more well-established schools might go, huh? Yeah, Tim, it's the, the joke, the running joke around our team. I don't know if you ever watched The Simpsons, but there's this one episode where in it, 
Homer Simpson is standing in front of a bunch of green bushes and he sort of steps back and he disappears into the bushes and the bushes kind of close around <laughs> his and, and you can't see it. That's that's like a it's a, I don't know if it's a motto or a an aspiration or a true north for our team, <laughs> but that's what we're trying to do because we believe that learners can handle it. You know, wherever there's something that teachers or adults have typically done in a school setting that we think learners can do, you know, we'll step back and we'll let them do it, and it will take a while and it will be messy, but it's you know what neuroscientists call productive struggle. That's really missing from a lot of teacher classrooms in in our country today. And, you know, and I've been a teacher in a teacher led environment in the largest public school setting in, you know, in the state of Georgia. And and so I can relate. I mean, it is very tempting as a teacher and it's even more tempting as a parent when a young person whom we love struggles to step in and to, you know, shoulder some of that responsibility, take take some alleviate some of the pain or struggle that's just so tempting. And, and in many ways, you know, we, we, we are addicted as adults to answering the question for the learner and explaining it to them. And when we do that, I mean, it's helpful. And there's definitely moments where it makes sense, you know, I think to, to, to do some explaining. But, but I think we've got to re- realize the trade-off. When, when, we, when we explain all the time, we take away the opportunity for the learner to have to shoulder the responsibility for their own learning and to struggle productively and to build that agency that you're describing. And the way I've heard a colleague of mine, Orly Friedman, uh, who's doing the Red Bridge out in the, the West Coast schools, you know, define agency as the skill, having the skill and the will to achieve your goals. And at Forest, you know, we are giving learners practice every day at building their skill building their own motivation and will to achieve their dreams and their goals. Every single day, they set their own goals and they put it in an online platform called Journey Tracker. And they have a chance at the end of the day to kind of reflect on, you know, the extent to which they met or did not meet those goals. You know, just kind of like me and you, I mean, as you know, sometimes they, you know, miss their goals and don't hit them for the day. Sometimes they, you know, far exceed them. Sometimes they're right on track but they're learning how to right size their goals, but but really they're they're building that agency and they're figuring out like you know what what really are goals worth setting, how, how what really does motivate me, and how can I as an independent self directed learner how can I learn over time to, you know not do something that's immediately gratifying like talk to my friends or watch a YouTube video or watch Netflix or whatever it is, and instead choose to do something hard, choose to do something challenging that aligns with my short and my long-term goals. So, so, you know, they have running partners at our school that they set their goals with. They have town hall meetings where they make the rules for the studio in the form of a contract of promises. They have to hold each other to those promises. So they're getting practice, you know, at uh, building that agency and learning how to really self-govern and, and make rules worth following. And, and of course, they have so much choice and they have to experience the natural consequences of those choices. And that's very powerful. I mean, them experiencing the natural consequences, positive or negative, of their choices is, is maybe the most powerful instructor, you know, in the building, it, you know, the, more so than what any uh, caring adult, um, you know, you know, provides for them. Well, you know, it's interesting when I ta- started my career teaching fourth grade, we did a contract. We kind of had some of those things. I was trying to, I think, get at a lot of what you're talking about. 
in my fourth grade classroom in Fairfax County Schools with 32 young people under my care, which surprises me to this day. And, you know, the thing was, though, I also had an overarching educational philosophy that I think was driving what I did. And I think my educational philosophy was, if I'm talking, they must be learning. So the more talking I do, the more learning will will take place. And so what I did was I had these philosophical principles that I wanted to implement, but yet at the same time, I then filled the day with stuff, stuff that I designed. We had this long block in the morning, two and a half hours, where I could have done whatever I wanted. And what did I do? Each morning on the blackboard, I filled it up with spelling and then history and then math and then language arts. And I blocked the time out and I created disciplinary silos for my students. Instead of opening it up and letting them have control, I took that control. And what it showed me was that time is the currency to get at that notion of self-directed learning that you're talking about. How does time work for the young people at Acton? How might that be different than what they might experience at a traditional school? Great question. Well, a typical schedule at Forest and, and Forest Online, you know, we start the day with an inspiring story, uh, usually a diverse character somewhere, and we invite the learners to put themselves in, in their shoes, and uh, it's kind of a hook for learners. And we pose a question that has no clear right or wrong answer, and then we just let them debate. So again, the day is starting off with that openness that you're describing, Tim, where you know they're sharing and forming perspectives, maybe even changing their perspective, but communicating it and kind of wrestling and building off each other and, and thinking critically. And then you know maybe taking away from that to summarize sort of a takeaway for the day. And then after that, getting alone with their running partner and setting goals. And then they have kind of what you're describing, a big chunk of time, a few hours, where they can live into their choices. So it's not siloed in the disciplines like you just described. It's open. They, they can choose to work on whatever, uh, whether it's a disciplinary, if they're going to go deep in a discipline, you know, like math uh, or writing or reading or storytelling or civilization, then they, then they can. Or they might be working on a project that, you know, pulls from all the different disciplines. But they do that for a big chunk of time. And, and everybody's working on different stuff. And so they kind of have that space to get into flow. We talk a lot about flow. And I know you appreciate, you know, that theory around flow, that sense when you kind of lose time and you really focus and, and lose yourself in your work. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and then, you know, we'll kind of break up the day with a little break and then, you know, have some lunch together and maybe some PE or art. Uh, and then the afternoon sort of uh, rinse and repeat in many ways, start again with that story. And then really do some hands-on stuff in the afternoon, typically with a real-world project. But that, again, is transdisciplinary, you know, where they're using their math, they're using their science, they're using their English. You know, an example, Tim, would be learners at our school uh, partnered with an amusement park down the road called Fun Spot America to use their physics knowledge to design, help them design a new roller coaster that they're building now. And, you know, in the end, they pitched their presentation. These are elementary learners, by the way. So your fourth grade class, you know, uh, would, would have been participant in that. But again, it's blurring the, blurring the lines between the real world and the classroom so that learners can see, you know, I'm learning this physics for a reason. Like this is actually real and useful, you know, in the world. And we're going to help out the community. But that's kind of how we think of time. And then if you sort of spread it out over the course of a session or a year, you know, uh, our guides, which is our word for teachers, you know, we, we guide the learners to create for themselves a badge plan, which, you know, we don't give grades. We give badges, which represents a set of 
skills and knowledge that learners need to and want to master over the course of a year. And those are customizable, by the way. I mean, you can, you know, families can put on those badge plans whatever they want. And we kind of help them think through the trade-offs of what, what's going to go on there. But, you know, from a time perspective, they're working on over time proving mastery of, of those various badges so that by the end of the year, they're advancing at the pace they really want to. And we are sort of agnostic to how fast or slow they're going. That's one of the beautiful things about a self-paced environment. You can go as fast or as slow as you want. We, we typically find learners go faster on average, and most of our learners do, uh, you know, are above grade level as evidenced by norm reference tests uh, nationally. But we're okay with them going slow too, because sometimes that's okay. And hopefully that kind of environment that embraces that being behind, being on track, being ahead, whatever, you know, helps them flourish a little bit more and appreciates the, the unique differences of every, of every young person. Yeah. You know, it, it reminds me of a book I just finished reading from Greg McEwen called Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. And it makes me think about school and how, you know, over time we just keep packing in more, right? It seems to me sometimes we have the disciplined pursuit of more, of adding, right? Teachers will often say, it's just one more thing I'm putting on top of everything else. And I think part of the magic of what you're describing is this idea of creating the essentials, the essential context, whether it be relationships, choices and trade-offs, setting personal goals, measuring progress, having freedom, choice to make decisions about where I'm going. One of the things I find also fascinating is that in this model, in this model of stepping back, in this model of letting students do more, you actually need less to make it work. And the result of that is that you're able to run the school from a business model perspective for less than a traditional independent school. Independent schools traditionally, I think right now, our average is $26,000 across the NAIS network of schools for a year of education and doing great work and often feeling though like, man, $26,000, I can't get it done for that. And yet you've been able to figure out, and many other schools like the Forest School have figured out a business model that actually unlocks maybe lower tuition. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, Tim, it's a provocative you know, question, I, I think. And for, first of all, to your point about us wanting to keep ad, I, I remember in my early studies of education, there was a researcher called Marzano. I don't know if you ever came across this study. Yeah, yeah I know Marzano, sure. Yeah, he, he looked at kind of the, the standards, whether you know, typically public school standards, but, but also some independent school standards that were similar and kind of asked the question, okay, if a learner was really going to master these, how long would it take? And I think he and his research team concluded it would take something like 22 or 24 years, <laughs> you know? And then of course, we, we, since that time, you know, we've, we've obviously had some revising that's taken place of our standards in independent and uh, public school settings where they're more skills-based and less knowledge-focused in an information age to, to help alleviate some of that. But still, it's a lot. And, and I know teachers everywhere feel burdened by how much they quote unquote have to cover with learners and get through. And so, you know, one of my friends and colleagues at Harvard, uh, John Meta, you know, he and I have been talking for a long time about cutting out, you know, uh, curriculum and what, what can go. Yeah. He, he sort of took that idea and, you know, you, you're familiar with the Marie Kondo, you know, approach to, I, I believe she was the uh, professional. You're working with like your closet, right? And this whole notion of like, you pick up a sweater and you're like, do I love this? Does this bring me joy? That's exactly right. You know? And then if not, it goes. Yeah, 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 totally. So, so Joel was like, how do we Marie Kondo 
you know, the curriculum, right? And, and get to this essential, you know, what, what's most essential about learning. And, and you're right. I mean, when we embrace as a team certain mindsets, dispositions, default positions around what learners are able to do, the adults in the building do less. And it's not irresponsible. It's just a different set of roles and who's on the hook for what and who's doing what. And I mentioned earlier that, any, you know, anytime there's something that we think that typically adults have done that we think learners can do, we'll, we'll give it to them. And, uh, you know, an example is them making the rules. An example is them holding one another accountable for the rules. I mean, you know, a lot of schools have, you know, a dean of students, right, or uh, an, an ad administrator in charge of behavior. Well, what if, you know, the, the learners did that? Um, obviously guided and, and supervised in a way to make sure it was non-discriminatory and respectful and empathetic, but, but learners can do that. And, and what better practice will they get at learning to live together than being in charge, you know, of those rules? But not just that. I mean, event planning. We do seven events, public events every year that are learner-led. And I, I just, I used to work in an independent school and I've worked in uh, public schools as well, well, where the, where the events, there was a lot of pressure on the adults to pull off a really oh, yeah. event, right? And, and so much time and planning. But when, when I say to our parents and caregivers, like, Hey, this event coming up is learner led. They've been working on it for five weeks. And so here's what you can expect. You can expect it to be and feel and look learner-led. And by the way, this is amazing practice for them. And oh, by the way, when you leave, well, as you walk out the door, we're going to ask you for your feedback. And we're going to show them the feedback the next day on Reflection Day so that they have a chance to see your experience of the event that they put together, right? I mean, it just takes so much pressure off the adults. And it's a great opportunity for the young people, you know, to lead and to apply their learning and to engage others and use their learning to solve a real-world problem and so, and again, those are just a few examples, but as a result, I mean, I think our cost per pupil is somewhere between five and 6,000 a year right now. And, and we're grateful for that. I five and six? Yep. 5,000 and 6,000, not 50,000 or 60,000, right? Like you're, it's <laughs> a dramatically, that's a dramatically different model. I mean, how many students now at the Forest School? We have 140 in person and then 50 online from all four U.S. time zones, Kenya and Uganda. Wow. So 140 in person, essentially kind of grades one through 12, right? There, I know grades are different. You're in multi-age spaces. We have pre-K four through 12. Oh, okay. So pre-K four through 12, you got 140 in person, 50 online, you know, almost 200 total students, total headcount, total FTEs, right? Because as you said, as students do more, adults do less. Like how many people need to work for a school with... 150 on campus students and or and then 40 40 online. Yep, that's right. So we've got I'll need to double check these numbers Tim, but because we're we've just added a few staff, but I think we've got about 12 full-time folks and then we have a cloud of contractors that are part-time as well. So maybe 18, 19 in all and then that includes our institute for self-directed learning as well. Wow. So and also we'll talk about that another nonprofit, the Institute for Self-Directed Learning, which is doing which is really spreading this work, taking it to scale. But 12, 12 people, like that's it. That's everybody, right? That's business operations. That's, you know, how you think about enrollment. That's all your teaching and, and guides, your staff, your support staff, everybody. That, that's correct. And 
you know, and again, we're based in Atlanta, which is, as you know, and, and a lot of your audience knows, is a, the independent school market here is, is dense. And, and so it does take, it's a new way of thinking for parents and caregivers who are exploring independent schools. You know, the fact that we don't have a front desk, for example, or we don't have a high touch admissions process. We are high touch when we get in touch with folks, but we're very strategic about, you know, when we sort of open our doors to folks who are interested in exploring the school via exhibitions or open houses and, you know, the admissions process or what have you. But but helping parents understand we don't have a lot of these same services that are costly because we're giving this opportunity to the learners. I mean, honestly, the parents, even though for a lot of them at first, they're like, I don't know how I feel about that. Usually over time, they're like, oh, I think that's great because it's giving my children an opportunity to lead, an opportunity to to learn, and they're capable. Yeah, and that's the thing also for me is when you and I have spoken in the past, one of the things you had told me when you're sitting down with families who are interested in enrolling their child into the forest school, you, I think you had said something to the effect of one of the things that's most important about that conversation is you often find yourself saying to them, I'm not actually sure this is for you. I'm not 100% sure you understand, you know, what this is going to be like. It's, it's a little different. You know, that much open time, that much student design goals, the things you traditionally expect from school, you may not see here. And it gets to this idea, Tyler, that I've been thinking about, which is this idea of clarity, this idea of just saying, like, this is what we're about. This is how we do what we do. This is really what we believe and we'll be a great fit for some folks and we won't for others. And that's okay, right? To do what we do, that's that's part of strategy. You know, Michael Porter says essentially at the core, strategy is designing to be unique. This idea of figuring out who you want to be. And I'm curious, as you've worked with families, how do they respond? Or do you find that sometimes there are families who explore the forest school and say, yeah, that's just not for us? Or do you find families that struggle with when their child enrolls? You talked about the 25% where kids come from, the different schools. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question, Tim. I would say we've been tracking for what reasons parents will move on you know, from our school year after year. And, there, and there's two most common ones. One is, despite the fact that they early on will sign on and are excited about the notion of having a guide instead of a teacher, some of them will decide, you know what, I want a teacher for my child and I do not want a guide. And so that'll be one of the main reasons that they that they leave. And by that, they mean they actually want a, a caring adult answering their questions and explaining things to them. And uh, and for lots of different reasons. But that's that's kind of one of the choices. Now, mo- the vast majority of our parents do not conclude that. But we do have a minority of parents that conclude that. The other thing would be learners who do have some special needs. And, you know, our school is, because we are small, we are not set up to serve all students with, uh, especially some students with special needs. Now, we do have about 30% of our learners have an individualized education plan or a psych eval. And that's one of the common misconceptions about self-directed learning is that it's not good for learners who do have special needs. One of our uh, main questions out of our research agenda, Tim, is to disprove that because we know it, it works we know learner-led environments can work for learners with special needs, and we want to add to the research base that demonstrates that. And there are some subset of special needs that don't work. And so, for example, you know, I, I remember a middle schooler who was with us, and I miss her. She's awesome. She was on the autistic spectrum, and the the hardest part for her was the student accountability. 
It was learners holding one another accountable for their actions and for their work and for their progress. She just was not in a place in her life and in her spirit and heart in that moment where she could take that without um, it being overwhelming and stressful for her. And her parents and I talked at length about it. And I get it. And I saw it, too. And, you know, we all thought this makes a lot of sense for them to kind of to move on. But those are the two main reasons why folks move on. But but to your point, Tim, when I talk with parents before they enter the school, I usually after they express interest, I just make them very aware of the struggles that they're going to have that, you know, parents have had and caregivers had had at our school because they are different than struggles that you have in a traditional teacher led environment. And as a father and as a, a head of school and a guide, they're exactly the struggles I want our learners to be having because I think they're productive struggles and they're going to result in the kind of humans that we want. But I just want to give parents a heads up. And so I talk to them about things like, you know, being OK with failure and, and how our school will celebrate learning from failure and, and provide many opportunities for learners to experience the natural consequences of their decisions. You know, I'll talk to them about pacing. A lot of parents will get uncomfortable if their learners fall behind. And, you know, in our experience, that's a huge learning opportunity for learners. And the best thing to do is let them fall behind and let them struggle with it and realize, oh, my goodness, I have got to catch up. But again, the parents, the temptation there is to jump in and, you know, not do what Homer Simpson did and disappear into the bushes, but do the opposite. You know, communications is a struggle as well. We really put, I can't tell you, Tim, and I know you've been in this work a long time too, like so many times there are adults having conversations about young people and young people aren't even in the conversations, you know, and it's like, what are we talking about? Like this young person needs to be leading this conversation. They're the ones on the hook for this. What's their opinion? What's their take? What's their goal? And so as a result, we don't let our parents talk to our guides. They have to go through me uh, at school. And so, and the reason is because we want to keep the responsibility on the learner. Now there's obviously exceptions where, you know, we'll need to get everybody together or I'll have a conversation with the parent and the learner together, but we keep communications on the learner so that they have to learn to advocate for themselves and be responsible for their choices. Um, again, there, there's a laundry list of, of common parent struggles I could talk about, but those are just a few. And, and again, I find what happens, Tim, in our experience is parents begin to parent differently as well. They start to give more ownership to their learners, move away from sort of more, you know, helicopter approaches to more empowering self-directed, learner-led, child-led approaches. And and they report to us that it's positively impacted their parenting as well. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of one of the great lessons I learned from a talk I heard from Dan Kinlan, the psychologist. And he was basically talking about this sort of, if you're as a parent, if your child is getting out of the shower and leaving their wet towel on the floor and you're picking it up, that's going to be a, a sort of a, like, are you the kind of parent that picks up the wet towel? You know, and I'm telling you, man, it hit me. I was like, yeah, like I, that wet towel on the floor drives me crazy. And so <laughs> I pick it up and like, but what am I, what message am I sending when I pick that thing up? Right. And what am I doing for my child? And how is that a learning opportunity? And it's where my lovely wife, Diane, and I are different because she would never pick up the wet towel, right? And if you think about it, where in school are we picking up the wet towel, right? Where are we bringing that in? Like, I think that is something we need to be thinking about. And it, you know, Tyler, I could talk to you all day long and I, and we haven't even scratched the surface on the, on the Center for Self-Directed Learning 
and or the Institute, excuse me, for self-directed learning. And what I'm so curious about there and the work you've done through the Institute to help schools, existing schools, charter schools, public schools all over the world to start thinking about self-directed learning, start thinking about bringing these ideas into existing schools. One of the questions I'm curious about from that is when you've been doing that work, as you've been writing and bringing that to schools, what do you find that schools struggle with? You know, I, I think of myself as a teacher and I think about when I got into teaching and I think about how I saw, I felt my job was to get in the way. My job was to help students. My job was to relieve that angst that you talked about, that productive discomfort, right? But what do you find are the struggles that schools often have as they hear what you're saying and they say, yeah, I want school to be more like that. And then we just have trouble getting there. Yeah, Tim, I could talk about this a long time. We've really tried to be very intentional about as we've partnered with uh, schools and networks to to move more towards self-direction, learner-led environments to document, you know, all the struggles uh, that educators and leaders, parents and learners have. And uh, our list is not exhaustive, but it is long at the moment. And, uh, you know, you mentioned this notion of letting go, just the role of a teacher, that in and of itself, just changing what the expectations are, the competencies required to be an educator in a learner-led environment are different than what are traditionally taught in a graduate school of education. And I teach in a graduate school of education. You know, so, so I think some of, the, some of the biggest challenges are just the notion of letting go. You know, a lot of teachers and educators uh, and guides, they're, they're afraid to let go. And, and let learners have control. They're, they're concerned about students lacking confidence. They're concerned about student maturity. Uh, you know, maybe they as an educator don't have experience with learners actually doing amazing things. You know, they haven't seen that. And that could be a barrier. You know, some, for sure, some teachers in parts of our, our nation struggle with a lack of resources, you know, lack of internet connectivity, lack of devices, that sort of thing that really amplify learner-led, self-directed environments. Some teachers, you know, have misconceptions about what it is. I mean, I think a, a real great critique of self-directed learning, if you don't know anything about it, you just hear the idea. It's like, oh, that's that's pretty self-centered for kids. It's like, oh, just let them do whatever they want to do. And that seems really self-centered. You know, it's like that doesn't make any sense. And they need to be responsive, productive, productive citizens. So like, how does this you know, so that's a misconception. I mean, and one of the things that we tried to do in 2021 with our landscape analysis on self-directed learning was to put out a definition that would included, first of all, you know, a more diverse set of authors and researchers. Second of all, that included K-12 uh, studies, because most of the research on self-directed learning is only for adults you know, and beyond. And so we, we included a definition of self-directed learning that, that has young people on the hook for the other for helping others, for finding a calling, you know, that will in fact change their communities and change the world. That's not just about them. So it's, you know, again, for, for a lot of teachers overcoming these misconceptions, as I mentioned earlier, Tim, a barrier is teachers perceive that they need to make sure that students are getting the content, you know, that they have to deliver. That's a tremendous barrier to overcome, you know, uh, class numbers for some, they report being, you know, a struggle, but honestly, in a self-directed environment, when there's a culture of self-directed learning built, the, the classroom numbers can actually be bigger than, you know, for us in our high school, for it's one, to, one to 35, one adult for 35. There's some acting, you know, it's, it's bigger than that, you know, one to 50 
uh, would be like a ratio that's aspirational. I think a big, and I'll just, I could, again, I can name a lot of areas, but I'll end on this one. It's public perception, you know, of, you know, I remember when we were trying to launch our school and create a diverse pipeline of families, you know, a lot of our lower income families, especially were confused. They were like, wait a minute, my, I'm sending my child to, to school so that they can get what they need for life's next steps. And you're telling me that your staff isn't going to answer any questions. How does that work? You know, and, and, and so what I learned was that, you know, in terms of messaging and communications, we want to help families understand that what we're empowering young people to do is help them how to think for themselves and how to learn for themselves so that they can win and own their own future. But to, to get there, there are some learning journeys that parents need to go on to understand what, it lo- what, what learning looks and feels like and how empowering a learning environment like that can be. And so part of the work that we do, honestly, is helping parents mourn the loss of the traditional education system and get excited about and convicted for a new model of learning. And so we have parent coffees every month where we kind of get together and share ideas willingly and steal ideas shamelessly from each other. But those are just some of the barriers. I could list more, but those are the top ones that come to mind. I love it. And when you start to sort of go with that less is more, when you start to think about this idea of stepping back, you know, I I talked in the past about this notion of what I call structured agency, that to create that environment, there has to be that element of design structure, right? It's, It's essential to it. And also higher and higher degrees of agency. And it's the blend of the two. It's not just, hey, do whatever you want. It is this blend of the two that creates the context for the kind of learning that we're looking for. Tyler, I had no doubt that this was going to be an, a fascinating conversation. And I just I just want to thank you for taking the time to join the New View EDU conversation because your perspective on self-directed learning, you're living it in action every day at the Forest School, the research that you're doing and sharing with the world. And I would encourage folks, and we will put in the show notes, links to both the center and the Institute, the Forest School, and many other things that you have put into the world is just going to help all of us continue to think about this evolving role of teacher, the evolving purpose of our schools, and what we can really be doing to help our students thrive. And as as you said in the beginning, flourish. That's what we're really after. That's what we're designing for. So I just want to thank you so much for spending some time with us today. You're welcome, Tim. And thank you, as always, for the chance to connect. And uh, it was, it was uh, very enjoyable. I learned so much in that conversation. You know, as our listeners know, agency has been a thread that has found its way into almost every one of our conversations. And I love the definition from Orly Freeman that Tyler shared with us. Agency is having the skill and the will to achieve your goals. You know, as we continue thinking about agency, I was also thinking about that realization that Tyler brought forth. That notion that productive struggle accompanies agency. And it's our job as educators to design, to create the space where learners can navigate through that struggle. You know, I left wondering as educators, how can we design to step back? 
Be sure to join us for our next episode when we'll be talking with Maddie Hewitt, the executive director of NISA, the Near East and South Asia Association of Independent Schools. And we'll be talking with Kelly Borg from the Association of Independent Schools of New South Wales in Australia. In that conversation, we're going to take a look at global trends, what's happening with learning design and student well-being. See you next time on New View EDU.